This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How a Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what do you need to do to get there? To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Milo Shapiro. Milo, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So Milo is a business owner, a motivational speaker, a speaking coach, a team building consultant, and an author. He's been doing motivational and educational speeches since 2002, when he qualified for membership in the National Speakers Association. And he started his speaking coaching practice in 2004 uh, with a business is called Public Dynamics. His first book back in 2007 was the fun and informative public speaking, get A's, not Z's, as in not put you to sleep. And the second more recent one, which hit number two on Amazon's uh, December list, top list, number two on December 2015, that is. And that book was called Public Speaking for Teens, Get A's, Not Z's. So a, a teen version of that book, fantastic. And his most recent book, which we're gonna touch on a little bit, as we get into the conversation, is called The Worst Days Make the Best Stories. Uh, so Milo has worked with hundreds of people, uh, helping them to become more prepared, polished, and powerful when they have a reason to speak in front of others, as a lot of us as small business owners often do. His clients include large companies like Sharp Healthcare, Merrill Lynch, but also sales reps, doctors, researchers, CEOs, company presidents, other coaches, and other professional speakers. So he's got a broad range of experience. And of course, he's a business owner himself, a solopreneur. And so he's got that perspective as well to share with us. So in this episode, Milo's going to share with us his entrepreneur journey, how he got to where he is today, because he does come from a corporate background. And specifically, then we're going to dive into tips and techniques that'll help us become better public speakers. So once again, Milo Shapiro, welcome to the show. Can you always do my intro? Wow, that was great. <laughs> I usually stumble a lot more, oh, so no, I just that happen was... to go fairly smoothly. I have had my intro botched so many times over. That was really good, so <laughs> thank that. you for that. I appreciate that. Um, and practice helps, as, as you'll be, I'm sure, advising us when it comes yes. to speaking about anything. Now, as we chatted before we started recording, you're in San Diego, right? I am. I love it out here. 
you uh, grew up there, always been there, or what took no, you there? Little by little, you'll, you'll catch the accent sneaking out. I, I don't have the <laughs> accent I had when I first got to California. Ah, there it is. There it is. It. There it is. Yeah, that was my voice until I was about 25, 26, and I got tired of people constantly talking about me from New York. So I actually did work on it. Accents can be changed or toned down, but it's never going to go away, and I, and I don't want it to go away. I don't care about that. I just don't want it to be a distraction. Right, right. Man. But well, uh, well, Long like Island, said, Queens accent. And we'll talk about that because that's such a key component that you talk about when you help people with speaking. So great. So let's get into it then starting, uh, if we could understand that career you've been on, the path you've been on, which has been so interesting. You, if I got it right, went to college and got a computer science degree. Completely different world, huh? Not ex what people expect when they talk to you. Every once in a while, it's kind of nice because people think, uh, we want someone who understands what the corporate life is like, and this is an entrepreneur. And I get to tell them I spent 15 years in state government, oh, uh, utilities, uh, private sector, in IT before I ever made that transition. And sometimes that gets me that foot in the door, like, oh, he actually might know what it's like to work in an organization. Exactly, especially so in IT organizations like you did with for almost 11 years, right? Oh, it was more than that. It was from 85, okay. 85 to 2000, so 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> that was your thinking, I'm assuming, when you were in college. That's what I'll do. I'll have a career. It'll be great. And, you know, I, especially back then, I, IT and still a great career to go into. Mm -hmm. well, did you ever have any thoughts of becoming an entrepreneur? Not then. <laughs> no, my, my goal in going to college, while everybody was taking all these courses, they found, you know, there was the people taking the women's studies and international relations and, and language. And, and I knew if I'm going to spend this much on college, I'm coming out of here marketable. That's why I'm here. Yeah. And so I, I chose computer science freshman year. Uh, it was very competitive in my college. If you didn't achieve certain grades in four core courses, you couldn't be a computer science major. So yeah. I would have actually had to change college. So I applied myself and I, and I qualified and, and expected to spend my life in IT. So here's the journey. Uh, I, I got a job in Albany, got into a better job in Albany, came out to San Diego on vacation, fell in love with it. Instead of going to SeaWorld in the zoo, I decided I'm going to use this time to job hunt. I can still enjoy the good weather going to interviews instead of the zoo. I borrowed literally a typewriter from the hotel. People that were so nice to me. I, I owe them so much all these years later. And uh, But fax machines had just been invented. So they I typed up my resume from scratch. They faxed it to a bunch of headhunters. I got three interviews in a week. And the market for IT in 89 was so strong oh, yeah. that I got all three jobs. Wow. So I went back to Albany, packed up my stuff, came back out here, and the one that I chose was San Diego Gas and Electric, and which became Sempra Energy. If, if you're, people out here know that story, how it became – it went from a, a gas and electric company to an entire inde, independent company that owns a utility. Mm -hmm. um, but all those years, starting from about oh, 91 on, I started thinking – I'm really not doing what I should be doing. I didn't know what exactly it was supposed to be doing. I just knew I didn't have much passion for it. I was good at it. My clients were happy. I got pretty good reviews, but I wasn't a cubicle guy. So I discovered improvisation, and I started spending my nights, my weekends, even some of my vacations flying up to study with masters in Calgary and Edmonton and, and San Francisco and Los Angeles to, to continue to study the art of improvisation. But in the back of my mind, I always felt like, there's probably a dozen people in the country who can make a living doing improvisation. I'm not going to give up my career for that. 
Well, somewhere around 96, 97, when websites started to become much more common, someone dropped my, by my cubicle and said, hey, check out this website. And it was a company on the East Coast that was using improvisation for team building. So I, I found that fascinating. And mm. they actually kind of laid everything out there, what games they played for what purposes. And I said, oh, I get that game does teach listening skills. That game does teach building on each other's ideas. Well, that's not even a really good game for creative problem solving. They probably should play this game. And I just sat at my desk, not doing my work as I was prone to do when I was bored, <laughs> and, uh, and made a list of if I ever gave a team building course using improv, what would I put on that? And I it just sat in a drawer, kind of a pipe dream. Well, in late 99, uh, the company needing to downsize offered voluntary separation packages to a quarter of us. And I decided to take it and start that that company that I dreamed about. It was, it was a it was the scariest thing I ever did in my life, walking away from a job that secure where I liked my coworkers, liked my boss, didn't hate what I was doing, and give everything up and start from scratch. Uh, terrifying, but uh, I'm really, really glad 17 years later that I did it because I, I'd be a different person now if I hadn't. Well, so that's what, what I did. Uh, what do you think, Milo, that, that pushed you to – obviously, you, you had this opportunity with the, the, re, the, the reduction, the layoff or whatever right. they called it. Um, and a lot of times that's what will help us take that last step. Do you think if that had not come around, you would have waited longer and maybe it would have been another few years before you did it? Or I would go so far as to say I never would have done it. Interesting. I don't – yeah. I don't think I ever would have had the courage to just plain quit my job. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I said many times over as I was struggling back and forth with whether to hand in that letter because it sat on my desk a while, uh, to whether to accept it or not, I just wish they'd fired me. I wish they just downsized me, fired me, and I'd said, well, you know, since I'm out of work now, it would be the time to try this if I'm ever going to do it. But I had a total choice. It was a voluntary separation. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and it was a good amount of money, but not not a golden parachute by any stretch. It basically was going to get me through six months. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. And, that. and that's, you know, that's that's pretty darn good, right? It's pretty darn good. But six months later, you better have that business <laughs> up and running. You better have that business. Sorry, or, so I'm gonna, or, I want to get to that. But I want to ask you about what did your parents think first when you decided <laughs> to move to San Diego? And then when you decide to quit this great job that you had, this great career. Great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Uh, moving to San Diego, they were a little bit sad because I was going from four hours away to a seven-hour, eight-hour flight sure, away. So sure. that, that was hard. Anytime someone moves away, it's hard. But at least I wasn't leaving their town. So they were used to not seeing me frequently. And they known that I had fallen in love with San Francisco once before and then let that go. And they said, oh, he's going to come back and want to move. And I said, yeah, but it's different this time. I job hunted. I didn't just, you know, <laughs> fall in love with the town. Uh, and I like it better than San Francisco because it's really warm. Uh, so it, it was it was challenging. But, you know, we, we went through that. It was a big thing when I quit my uh job and change careers with them because that was the college they had paid for. <laughs> I was very conscious of that. You're that throwing it all away. Yeah, you know, and I, not, not to toot my own horn that my parents paid for college, but I, it was sort of laid out to me, if you go to a state school and, you know, and choose one of the ones that, that, that we feel will put you in a good position, we'll cover it. You want to go to a better school or a private school, you're taking out loans. And I, I, I saw that I didn't want to come out with the debt, that I would get a good enough education from the State University of Albany. And, uh, and I took them up on that. So it, it, it was a little bit weird to tell them that. But they were really much better than I thought they'd be. They're, they're very play-it-safe people overall. But my mother, after a, there was a long pause, said, 
well, I guess we always kind of were surprised you didn't choose something outlandish in the first place. We were really shocked. In, in the arts, were you? did you always show preference they towards were afraid the arts? I, yeah, they were yeah. afraid I was going to be the actor who never moved out of their right. house. Right. Uh, because I loved theater, and I loved acting, and those kind of things. I loved the creative arts. That was what I was always drawn to. Um, and so they said, we were kind of shocked when you picked computer science, and we were high-fiving each other You know, when you weren't in the room. <laughs> She said, so the fact that we got 15 years out of it, maybe, maybe as much as we could have hoped for, they were more concerned about the choices I was making and did I know what I was doing. They would have rather I had taken some kind of a creative job in a company where I had a salary. But they, they couldn't argue that I had the six-month thing. And by the way, if you ever get offered a voluntary separation package or anyone, read the fine print because as it turned out, they gave me six-month salary into my IRA, not really? as a check. Wow. Yeah. So I had zero months money so to live on. You, and you didn't tap it. You left it there. You didn't take the penalty and pull oh, it out. Oh, yeah. That penalty would have been, would have been very severe. Oh so thankfully, I'm not a, I've never been a hand-to-mouth person. I've always had some money in the bank, and it was a good thing because I had to live on that. And now it turned out to be great because for the last 17 years, I mean, the stock market's gone quite done quite well in yeah, 17 no, it years. It gave you a tremendous head start, but I, I, I didn't quite follow. So then you had other savings that you had right. to live on to get it started. Right. And thank goodness I did because I'd already signed the paperwork saying that I was gone. Uh, I I just really thought I was going to get those checks. All right. So so how long did it take till you got the business to a point where you were making at least enough to to make a living? uh, It was probably into the second year. I did qualify for unemployment, kind of a long story on how that came to be. But bottom line was I did get unemployment, which really made a difference. It gave me a little bit of breathing room. When that stopped, I, I kind of wanted to cry because I didn't quite have it together yet, but it was starting. Um, and that was just around the time that the second phase of the business, the business had three phases. The second phase was that some of the team buildings that I was getting, people were coming up to me and saying, you should do this with bigger crowds, not just little groups of 15 to 20 coworkers, but like audiences, like a motivational speaker. And thankfully, I mentioned that to someone I met at an improv conference, and he said, they're telling you you need to get involved with the National Speakers Association. Let, I, I'm involved with that. Just a wonderful coincidence. He said, let me introduce you to people in the San Diego chapter. And another wonderful coincidence was at the, that, exactly that time, never before and never since, the San Diego chapter of NSA started kind of a, so you want to be a speaker program. And it was a <laughs> one-year commitment to go and from you know soup to nuts, what you have to have in place. And I jumped on board that. And the motivational speaking side of my business took off more than the team building did. So that made a huge difference. I don't know if I ever could have in the long run made it with just the team building because it's so competitive. And motivational speaking is also very competitive. But it was an easier thing to market. I knew when people were holding conferences, convincing someone to hold a team building who wasn't planning on doing one is a little tougher. Um, so, so that was, that was the second phase and that did make a big difference. And, 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 and uh, for whatever reasons, I don't know why people value a speaker's fee more than a team building fee. Uh, training has never gotten the respect that speaking has. So, so that made a big difference. Yeah, that's a, that's a great takeaway. A, A couple other takeaways there, Milo, is that sometimes it's timing, right? And so there's some, but some of it I think is you put yourself out there for that timing to come your way. Right. If I hadn't gone to that conference and been talking to people about what was going on in my life so that I could have mentioned to the right person at the right time, 
it, it could have just been, well, this didn't fall in my lap. It was it was because I was putting it out there. Yeah, yeah well, that's happened to me many times in my career as well. All right, so you you've still have Improv Ventures, which does the team building, if I'm getting it right, and then motivational. Pub- motivational. Oh, so that so public dynamics is what? What business is? Is the third part. So because yeah. Improv Ventures is still under the first part, because what makes me unique as a speaker is that I get the whole audience playing these improv games. So it made sense to keep that under the Improv Ventures umbrella. Well, after a couple of years of doing the speaking, I did, and I did not plan this or see it coming, people started coming up to me after my speeches and saying, would you work with me on my speaking skills? The way you use your PowerPoint and the way you craft your stories and all the different things you do with your voice, I think I need that. Or would you come in to work with my staff on it? Well, at first I said, I, I'm flattered and I, I've had a lot of training from Toastmasters and from the National Speakers Association and other things that I've done and my improv background has helped, but I, I'm not trained in training other people how to do this. So I said no and it was about the seventh time that someone asked that I just looked at them and it was like, Milo, the universe is dumping this in your lap. You are not listening. This is the need. Yeah. People are asking you for this. So I said to him, okay, I'm not going to charge you very much because like I told you, I've never done this before. And he was someone who was selling on QVC Shopping Network, and they told him that if he didn't get his sales up, they were going to cut him because they could get someone else in his time slot who would make them more money. Well, his business was 90% sales on QVC. His company was going to be in big trouble if he lost that QVC gig. So I watched some of his tapes, and I said, yeah, I can see about three key things that you are doing wrong. Let's work on them. We worked on them a few times. And then he went back to Pennsylvania where QVC is filmed out of for his seven-minute time slot. It's all seven-minute time slots before the next product. And not only did he do better, he sold out the entire product line in five of the seven minutes. They didn't know what to do with two minutes of dead air time because they didn't count on him getting better. Uh, so So they sold one of his other products, which he did not have in Pennsylvania. But for two minutes, they sold it anyway. And then after they went off the air, they said, how quickly can you get that to Pennsylvania? He said, it'll it'll be shipped in the morning. And they said they said you were completely different on camera. What did you do? And he said, I hired a speaking coach. And I said, and you gave them my card. And he said, oh, I didn't think of, that could have been life changing. <laughs> QVC knew me as the guy who turns everything oh, around for people. Yeah, so it didn't unfortunately end up happening that he told them. Nonetheless, uh, a great start. Let me ask you this. What, what was start. one thing you showed him or taught him or helped him change that made a big difference? A big thing, uh, difference with Kurt was that he was trying so hard to be energetic on screen that he was constantly building his energy. Well, try that for seven minutes. He looked frenetic and out of control about three minutes in and was still trying to build from there. So what I taught him was a technique that I created on the spot, but I've taught other people since, called the build and drop. And instead of saying, he sold plant products so that your your gardens would look great. Um, so instead of saying, and you're gonna plant this in the spring, and da 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 and just keep going from there, I taught him how to do this, to, to go, so what you're gonna do is you're gonna plant this in the spring, you're going to wait a little while, you're gonna see the buds, you're gonna to start to see the reactions before you know it, people are commenting and noticing your, go- so he build something, pause, and drop the energy back down. And so not only does that feel really good, it's a peaceful place because gardens are supposed to be peaceful, not exciting. Uh, So it comes to a peaceful place. It also gave him a place to build from again the next time he wanted to show energy. But he didn't look low energy when he hit the end of that sentence. Mm -hmm. He looked like he was finding a peaceful place. But showing excitement along the way also worked. So he did the build and drop a number of times throughout it. And I watched the host. This was a neat treat. I I don't usually get to do this, but I got to watch the host when it was on because I taped it and watched her go, 
Oh. Like almost every time he did it because she found herself in the mental vision yeah. of the beautiful garden as we did that. So that was just one thing. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah you you got to release that tension that you're building up because not only right. you but your audience is also getting frenetic and that's not the way it works. <laughs> so let, let's dive further into it. I'd like to get into some of your tips, thoughts, advice, experiences on helping people get better as you do. It's one of the things that you do. Um, why, let me start with, why do you think it is that most people are terrified of public speaking? Here's the cycle of what ends up happening. Most of us are trained in something unrelated to speaking. Very few of us have had almost any real training in it. Maybe you had a, a, you know, an English teacher who made people do oral presentations, but very few people have ever been trained. So, but you have some other expertise and because you know English, people think you're going to be able to be able to give a presentation about it since you know the topic, even though there's no connection between good presentation skills and simply knowing the language. So here's what happens. Someone is pressured to do it. It doesn't go well. They feel that it's not going well. They get off the stage knowing it didn't go well and they make the decision in the back of their mind, I'm not good at this. And then it gets worse because something comes up where they have to do it again and they say, well, I'm not a good speaker. This isn't something I'm good at. Well, we need you to. And then they come into it with the fear from the first time on top of not being trained and it's a vicious cycle. And it, and, and, and so they'll avoid it. They'll avoid the situation. They'll miss out on opportunities that could come up because they have told themselves they're not a good public speaker. Yeah. But but it starts early, Milo, right? I mean, this starts for us early in school for a lot of us, back to when they, we got called out to read in front of the class or, right. or our turn to read. So it's almost like there's there's something in us that avoids us because, it, because we're shy of it, we're embarrassed about it. But to your point, it's not a, we teach the skill of reading, writing, but we don't, this, this, this is a separate skill. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so to call it a phobia really isn't fair because very few of us have ever been shown what to do right. If I told you tomorrow that you had to do open heart surgery, my guess is you'd be nervous, not because you have a phobia of open heart surgery, but because you haven't been trained to do that. And maybe after a number of years in med school and watching other people, you would be far less nervous. So what I see my goal in breaking that cycle is to help people see what they can be doing right. And rather than dealing with the fear, which the hypnotists and people like that sometimes will attempt, I think it's wrong to help people give bad presentations without being scared. What I'd rather do is show them how to be really good at it and get excited about it, and the fear starts to go away on its own, and it gets channeled into, into excitement. Yeah. All right, so let's, let's talk a little bit more where you get started. So when you first start working with a client, where do you start? What's, what are the, some of the first steps, techniques, exercises that you do? Sure. So uh, my appointments always start with an assessment. I have, I work with them one-on-one. We go through this assessment together, and it's a teaching tool. Based on all their answers, I'm going to ask them things. So I find out what they what their background is, what their comfort is, what do they think they're already good at, what do they think they're not good at. So I'm aware. Uh, I, I talk to them about what do you do at the beginning of a speech? What, how important do you think that is? What's the right use of story versus data so that you're, you're holding people's attention? So it's a whole interview process about what they do and don't believe and know already. The other thing that's happening while we're doing this is it gives me a chance to experience their speaking style mm. because I, I never want to turn them into me. I always want them to be the best version of Kathy that they can be. So I'm learning a little bit about their speaking style so that when I'm correcting something, I could say, why don't you try saying this instead? And it's got to sound like something that Kathy would say, not like something Milo would say. So that first appointment's 
as important for me as it is for them in being able to help them moving forward. I also have to make sure though that they get enough value out of that interview process because if they come out of it going, I just booked an appointment and right. all he did was interview me. <laughs> right. so, so there's definitely a lot of teaching that goes on. Once in a while I get someone who didn't feel like they got enough out of the first one. But most people come out of it going, wow, that was really an interest. I never thought so much about all the different aspects of it. Yeah. And then at the end of the first appointment, that's when I say, okay, well, if, if you felt like this was a step in the right direction, this is just laying the groundwork. Here's where we'll go from here in future appointments. And in the future appointments, they'll always have homework assignments. They'll come back, they'll get critique, and then there'll be a, a topic of the week. Maybe it's my seven variants of vocal variety. Maybe it's effective use of the body to create zones on stage. Uh, there's always something I can be pulling out of the filing cabinet for that week's topic in addition to the feedback that they need. Yeah. And, and that combination is, is a great way to help people grow. Yeah, great, great stuff. Very insightful. I think that the, certainly this point of having that conversation with them first to see what their natural style is, is such a huge one. I see that so many times, Milo, where people are trying, they're pretending to be somebody else when they speak because they mm -hmm. think, well, this, I, this person over here that I've been mentored by or observed, that's the way they do it, so I'm going to pretend to be that person. Or they want to be the next Tony Robbins or, or Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And then while some of that helps, and in my experience, to emulate others helps, you have to find your natural tone, your, your natural voice. Right. What I say to people is, is think in terms of what can you learn from them, not, not be them, mm -hmm. especially if it's the wrong style. I mean I had this sweet woman in her late 60s who was doing a whole thing on inner peace and, and finding your comfort within yourself. And when I got to the question, what speakers do you like, Martin Luther King was the one she brought up. And I'm not going to knock him as a speaker. I'm not stupid. But uh, a preacher style was not appropriate for mm -hmm. a woman who was talking about inner peace. Martin Luther King's style was absolutely appropriate for the mission he had. Right. So I suggested some other people she might want to watch to see who's really good in a way that makes sense for what she's doing. Again, not to become them, but to learn from them. Yeah. All right. In, in your books, you do a lot of top 10 lists. And, and so I want to dive into a few of these to get some more great takeaways. Uh, one of them is talking about several things that can distract an audience when you're presenting or, or doing a speech. Can you share with us some of those things, distractions and how we control that? Sure. Let's see. Some of the things that distract. Um, what you're wearing is one of the ones that can be simple but make a big difference. I remember one woman I saw speak, and I can't tell you at this point whether she was a good speaker or not <laughs> because I was so distracted by what she was wearing. And it was this. She had about 18 bracelets on each arm. And if it had only been the look, I probably could have forgotten it inside of – 10 seconds. You know, oh, there she goes. Oh, she wears a lot of bracelets, whatever. But she was very physical. And every time she raised her arms, jingle, jingle, jingle up her arm, jingle, jingle down her arm, jingle, jingle. And it was like being at a percussion concert. And so I found myself sitting there thinking, is she going to lift her arms on this one? Yep, there she goes. And I was thinking about her bracelets instead of her message. Mm -hmm. Such a such a, a simple little thing that I'm, I don't know if anybody's ever told her that's really distracting. Even though if she'd just been wearing them out to a bar or to a, a meeting, it might have just been a, a nice look on her. It was, it was a distraction. Uh, we can distract our audiences by by referring to things that they don't know and feeling left out, maybe an inside joke. Or as I'm getting older, one of the things I'm finding is, is making references that are too dated. I, I mentioned Dear Abby in, in something just yesterday, and the person finally stopped me and said, I just got to tell you, I, I've heard of her, but I've never actually read her column. Mm -hmm. It's and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm talking to a 20-something who's never seen a Dear Abby column. And, it's, and it still exists. It's not even an, a, a gone concept. It's just that who reads a newspaper anymore if they're in their 20s? 
This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what do you need to do to get there? Perhaps you need help understanding and overcoming your fears. Maybe you're not entirely sure about what it really takes to be ready, willing, and able to become your own boss. My online program is about helping you take the first critical steps towards realizing your dreams of entrepreneurship. I will take you step-by-step through a process that will help you determine if you are in fact ready to be your own boss and specifically identify what you need to do next. To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. And so let's let's talk a little bit more on this point of distraction on dress, especially, let me give you a scenario. Let's say it's, I do not know the audience I'm going to be presenting for the first time, or maybe there might be a sprinkling of people I know. Maybe it's a chamber event and I've been asked to come in and speak and I might not know most of them. What I wear, uh, tell me about that, you know, being more neutral or not, the power red tie. <laughs> what of that is, do you see works and doesn't work? It's it's the whole gamut. It's, it's a great question, and unfortunately, it is still so different for men and women. Yes. Uh, so let's let's go with that. Chain. You really can't go wrong with a suit at the chamber event. Uh, that said, you could probably get away with wearing everything but the jacket. I'll often leave the jacket on the chair if it's warm enough, but I'll keep the jacket on if I'm cold because I don't want to put on a a casual jacket. You know, a, some, something from uh, North End or something like that would look weird with that. Uh, Basically, the, the rule of thumb still goes back to the olden times, which is always dress at or better than the audience by a little. That said, the suit in some settings would be really inappropriate. If I'm walking in, and I, that's why I stopped doing it, if I'm walking in to speak to a work group and I've gotten the word that some of them might even have a collar, you know, they, some of them might even just have T-shirts on, then I, I just stand out like a sore thumb in a suit. And I was doing all of my speakings in suits and got a really great message from a, a, a branding coach that I knew. And she said, you are about creating fun and energy and lightness in your audience with these games. The suit is such a disconnect for you, Milo. Can we find a look that's your look that when people go up, oh, there's Milo's thing. And she wanted to put me in Hawaiian shirts. I couldn't go that far. I felt <laughs> that that could be too much if I did end up with an audience of suits. So the look we came up with, and, and if you go to my website, you'll see me in it all over the place, is well, originally it was bright red with white suspenders, and I was always in bright red with white suspenders. Well, then I went to a conference and discovered people thought I wasn't ever changing my shirt. I wasn't so crazy about that thought. So we we changed my look to bright colors and white suspenders, and that's actually kind of fun because now I keep my eyes out for new shirts. Uh, and and people say, and there's something dressy about the suspenders. It's a little bit dated in a way, but it's kind of fun and funky that I can get away with not wearing the suit jacket and still look dressed up because the suspenders dress up my outfit. Yeah. I wouldn't say that everybody should do that, and that's my look. That no, it, it works. It works for you, your personality, and the messages that you're delivering. It also crosses over into the branding of you. Right. Yeah. And I and I've tried to think in terms of branding, like. What does the word suspend mean? Could I, you know, suspending your display? And I, and I never came up with anything I liked enough to try and work it into my advertising as far as, as wording. But people, oh, and I've had people come up to me years later at conference and said, oh, I remembered you. You're the suspenders guy. And great. 
You know, if, if they remember me because that helped me stay in their mind, every little thing you can do to, to make that happen is a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, and that's part of what we're trying to do when we speak as well is to be memorable, right? Right. Right. So with, and then I refer to women, uh, dress nicely, dress uh, properly on, with women, shoes matter, and, and women are tougher on each other. Yeah. That's one of the things that I've heard over and over again from my female clients. So look nice, but don't look like you're showing off. If, you, if everything you have is couture, it may look a little show-offish. So just, just dress nice, but business appropriate. Uh, and then if you, and if you know everybody there, maybe, yes, maybe you can go a little more casual as long as it looks nice and clean and, and well put together. Yeah, great tips. Now, you, you touched on it a little bit, but what about things that can alienate an audience? Uh, you can, yes, you want to make sure you're never offending anyone in the audience. Uh, politics is, is a big one. You, I would not wear a red power tie now because red has gotten too close of an association with a political party. So I would not wear a red or a blue tie right now because some people could actually just sit there wondering if I'm trying to connect with my people. Uh, and so I would wear probably some kind of a, a striped tie. I mean, you could wear those two colors, but I wouldn't wear them solid at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but politics in general, I saw one of the biggies in the speaking industry, someone whose name, if I mentioned, you'd probably know him. And, in, and, and I paid to be at that seminar. And he took a shot at the person who was in office at that time. If I don't tell you how long ago it is, you won't have to worry about which party it is. Sure, sure. And about maybe 60% of the audience laughed, and he laughed along with them because it was a big, loud laugh because there was a lot of people there. 60% was enough for a big, loud laugh. But he did not notice 40% of the people looking at him like, that's not funny. Well, I wasn't laughing, and the woman next to me who I didn't know wasn't laughing, and she leaned over to me. Didn't know this woman at all. She leans over to me and goes, I'm going to stay because I paid to be here, but I'm not buying his book after that crack. Yeah, that mistake. fast. Big mistake. So unnecessary. And so unnecessary. It wasn't a funny enough joke, and it didn't prove a point well enough. Unnecessary. Uh, sex, anything that, that has a sexual connotation to it, again, 80% of the audience can laugh. The other 20% could have been a decision maker you just offended. Uh, what else? Uh <laughs> I'm going to go back and read my book to come up with other things can can offend an audience. Well, uh, what about – here's one I, I've, I've certainly helped people with and I have to be conscious of is how you handle uh, questions or interruptions. And, and you can mm. come off as dismissive if you don't handle it right. So especially if you don't want to go there right now and you want to put it off, how do you handle that? Those are two different questions, so let me handle both of them. One is a question that you were going to get to, and that's exactly how I handle it. I say, oh, great question. Uh, you know, I've got 10 key points I'm speaking about. That's around number six or seven, so hold that thought. And I can say that with a smile, and usually people are fine knowing it's coming. When they, uh, when they have unrelated questions, I'll say that's something like – it depends on my situation. If I'm doing Q&A at the end – I'll say, you know what, I want to make sure I don't lose my train of thought on this. I am going to do a Q&A section at the end. Would you make a point, please, of raising your hand again? Because that's a great question. We always want to compliment the question so that they know that we didn't mind it and that we think that they're intelligent and we appreciate their energy. So by saying, would you please remember to hold that question because I definitely want to take that at the end, it just shows that I'm trying to stay on, t on my path and not that I don't care to answer the question. Sometimes I don't do Q&A. And uh, I'll have to let them know, you know what, I'm planning on staying afterwards to take any questions. I'm going to be at that back table for as long as you need me. So because I want to make sure I'm, I'm respectful of your event planner and ending on time, I'm not going to take questions during the program. But I promise, please come by. Uh, that's me because I really have a, a sequence and an event and every slide leads into each other. I'm, my PowerPoint is really intense. People have sometimes said to me, how do you have 80 slides for 60 minutes? <laughs> 
and it's because I'm going through the with it's a lot of visual stimulation, and it it does throw me more than maybe other speakers to have to stop and take a question. Sure. Other people love that though, and if they do, I'm not going to tell them no. If you want to take that question in the moment, great. I actually talk about it's beyond what we can do here. Seven different things you can do when you're asked the question, and only one of them is to answer the question. The other six are other variations on how to help that person or yourself and get back on track. But you, if, if you can quickly answer the question, great. The problem that will happen is if you do answer that question, you have now made this an interactive program. Yeah. If you want that, fantastic. Sometimes that's the right choice. And if I'm speaking to five or six people, I want that. But if I'm speaking to 100, I'm not going to finish on time if no, I keep going. You're going to quickly time. lose control and you've got a whole other situation. Yeah. Right. All right. Great, great tips there. All right. So let's get even deeper here. Let's say it's the morning of a speech I'm going to give this afternoon uh, or maybe at lunchtime, uh, whatever. Okay. What do I do that day? Let's break it down into components that day to start to get ready. Sure. And to take that one step further, even if it's first thing in the morning, and I am not a morning person, <laughs> I'm setting that alarm clock for 4.30 so that 7.30 a.m. feels like noon to me. Interesting. Because I never want morning energy coloring my speech. And some people, that would be a good thing maybe, but it isn't true for me. <laughs> so I am doing all kinds of things from 4.30 on. So I, I like to point out to people that you wouldn't run a race without warming up. Well, this is a one hour or a 30 minute race you're going to be running vocally. So we want to warm up a few things. We want to warm up four things that I show people. Our voices, our faces, our bodies, and our minds. And I'm using that time to do all of those. Uh, people don't even think about the face one. The face one is an interesting one. I gave a speech one time very, very early on, and a speaking coach was in the audience. I'd, I'd never met this woman. And she came up to me and she said, what did you do to warm up your face before you went on stage? And I didn't even understand the question. I, I warm up. I like, did I put hot compresses in my face? I didn't know what she meant. And I, and I kind of told her so. And uh, she said, no, no, no. You did something. I watched 12 speakers because we were each very small amounts of times. So there was a lot of speakers. And she said, you were the only one whose face was warmed up. What did you do right before you went on stage? And I had to stop and think. And I said, well, I was in the green room backstage, and I was nervous about the fact that I was taking my normal five-minute opening story and getting it down to like 40 seconds because I had such a short time here, and I had no room for uh, going off on a tangent. So I, so I was practicing it over and over again in the mirror. She goes, out loud? I said, no, I couldn't do it out loud because they would have heard me. The stage was too close to the green room. So I was lip syncing it. And she goes, and that's what you did. Try lip syncing without overdoing your face muscles sometime. It's almost impossible. She said, when you were doing that big, and I wish you could see me doing this right now. And when you were doing that big lip syncing in the mirror, doing it over and over again, you warmed up all the muscles in your face. And when you came out on stage, your face was alive and nobody else's were. And now that I understand the value in it, I take some of my clients, all my clients actually, through a series of exercises on things we can do to get our face muscles all warmed up so that when you want to give a big smile, your muscles aren't pulling back against it because they're tight. So you know what, what can feel like a big smile for me at six in the morning, I could look in the mirror and realize, wow, I'm barely grinning, but my muscles are working against me. So that's your face. Let me uh, interrupt there, Milo, because it's sure. so interesting. Is I can see where that has so much to do with how people then see you, that, that radiance, what you're communicating with your face. But yes. I think I, I found also that it helps with pronunciation, with, with how, yes. you, how clearly you speak. It's hard to mumble when you are using your mouth as open as it can be. Correct. And so what I'll do is I'm having people 
overdo everything. I talk about pendulums a lot. If we overdo everything in warm-up, then when the pendulum swings back to being relaxed from that, it's not going to swing back to where it started from. And so that is going to help you with articulation. It's a good point. I don't usually bring that up, but it is a very good point, which leads me into warming up your voice. Uh, but when you warm up your face, you're going to help with that. That's very true. So I have a series of speaking exercises that I take people through and by the time they've done those, and those are really difficult, then when they go back and do their opening paragraph, it feels like, oh my gosh, that was so much easier than what Milo made me jump through. Yes, that was the point. If, you, if your speech feels easier after doing that, it reduces your stress level, and it makes it feel easy, and you're going to be at ease, and it, that's what's going on during the warm-up is, is getting yourself ready. Uh, a brilliant speaker, and I don't remember who it was, but I remember the moment that she said it. She said, you're going to warm up. You have a choice. You can do it on your own or in the first half of your speech. But one way or the other, you're going to warm up. So which one does your audience deserve? The one where you showed up fully warmed up or where they said, oh, he was so much better in the second half of his speech. Do you hear that a lot? Oh, yeah, I was so that. much yeah. better. I was so, yeah, because you didn't warm up. Of course well, you were better you, in the Once second. you got going, you, it was much uh -huh. better. Yeah. How about if you got going in the mode of being going. So that's that's part of the warm-up. We warm up our bodies. I'm always on my elliptical. That's part of that 4.30 so that by 5 o'clock I'm on the elliptical so that as I'm moving, I'm comfortable in my body. And then warming up my mind. I don't have to do this if it's an evening speech because I've spent a whole day being active, but especially for the morning or even the lunch if I've had a quiet morning, I'll try and do a crossword puzzle, the bridge column, answer some emails so I'm focusing on word usage. So that my, my mind is awake and that the first time I'm really engaged in thinking isn't in front of the audience. Great tips. Great tips. Okay, so now I'm about to go on stage. What are some tips you could share there at that point in the process? Um, it, well, it, in terms of what you should say or, no, or in preparation. So in a lot of it at that point, I'm obviously is mental. So I've, you know, it's either about, I'm about to get introduced or I'm being introduced. And that's, I know for a lot of people, including myself, that's when the nerves go up. It's like, sure. Oh my gosh, here's, here's the, the moment of reality. I actually have to go up in there and do this now. And before I answer that question, and I'm going to, I, I've been at this uh, 17 years now. I always get nervous when they start that moment. That moment so might be. So do I. It, yeah. It's never. It doesn't go away. It I just away. think in terms of channeling it into energy. Like, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be great. Those kind of phrases in your head can, and that partially answers your question. Can channel that energy into excitement rather than nerves. I'm also going to take my last sip of water. Room temperature too warm. Not so hot that you burn your tongue. Never ever ice water. Oh my gosh. I, maybe it's because I'm a coach and not just a speaker. But I go to the National Speaker Association convention and constantly telling the waiters, we're all speaking. Take the ice water away, not ice water, because it would be like taking a cold bath before going for a run. That's what you're doing to your vocal cords. Yeah. So uh, so room temperature to very warm water, taking that last couple of sips. Not that I'm not going to drink on the stage. I am, but, but I don't want to be the first thing I do, so give myself a running start. Uh, I'm smiling because – it's going to lift my energy a little bit and more so because most of the people are watching the introducer, but there are a certain percentage of the audience who are watching you stand there on the edge of the stage waiting to go on. So you want to be conveying that you're looking forward to this. I don't want to be thumbing through notes looking like I'm disorganized or anything like that. That time has passed. You're on stage from the side of the stage or from the, or from the audience at your table because people know he's gesturing at you. Uh, and, then I'm, and, I'm, and beyond all that, breathing taking that time to take those deep breaths 
because and you, you've probably seen in this interview and partly because I want to cover a lot of material with you, but I do tend to talk fast. <laughs> so if I do that slowing down and that breathing before I hit the stage, I'm not as likely to channel that energy into speaking like this because it, it can certainly happen. So breathing is a big part of it. Yeah, that's it's critical. And it also helps you pace yourself. I think we often think we have to fill every second with sound and then, mm -hmm. you know, we that silence, when we have that moment of silence, we, we think it's lasted an eternity, but it hasn't. And it actually <laughs> helps you break up the cadence and, and kind of go back to that, that build and drop you talked about. And it gives you a moment sure. to gather yourself as well if for no other reason than to breathe. Yes, to gather yourself and to breathe. Those are the two reasons. You hit them both yourself. Uh, it also can be really effective to create anticipation. Mm. I'm going to show you something right now. I'm holding my glass of water, which I've been sipping mostly when you're talking. But on stage, and by the way, on stage, the water bottle with the cap, not the glass with the – I mm. have come so close to knocking that glass over, and then it's a complete distraction. <laughs> so the water with the – and so what I'll do is I will pick up the bottle while I'm talking. So it's in my hand. They see a drink is coming. You know, no big shock. I, I'm just going to be human. I'm unscrewing it while I'm talking to them. And then I wait for that moment. So I'll say something like, you know, one of the best things I can teach my clients, and I never want them to leave the room without knowing this, is, is that they should be using story effectively. So I'm actually sitting there drinking in front of them while they're thinking, what? What's the most important thing he wants his clients to know before they leave? What? And they start activating their brains. It keeps them engaged. If they guess right, they feel great. If they didn't guess right, they're like, oh, that's something I haven't thought of. Either way, I'm stimulating them through my own pause, and I'm getting my drink of water, which I needed anyway. Yeah, great technique. A couple other techniques you can think of during the presentation or the speech? Using uh, your body to create a picture. And, and, and let me go back to is there's because PowerPoint is such a big point, a part of painting a picture. It, it takes a lot of the pressure off you to do everything with your body. Uh, people ask me about PowerPoint. I say there's three ways you can use PowerPoint. You can not use it, you can use it well, or you can use it poorly. Sadly, most people choose the third option. So there's pros and cons to using PowerPoint. If you're going to use it, make good choices with it. And I could spend a whole interview practically oh, yeah. on that. Yeah, we, we talk but, for an hour about that at least. Exactly. But if you're using PowerPoint, use it to create visual images. And if you're not, you have to use your body even more. And even if you are using PowerPoint, not everything's going to be in the slide. So one of the things I show people who tend to be a little, a little stiff is what I call charading, where during a rehearsal, I have them absolutely overdo charading every step. I say to them, I want you to do this so that if someone deaf was here watching you, they could at least give me a gist afterwards of what they thought you were talking about. And then I go, that was way too much. Take it at 80%. Take it at 60%. Take it at 40%. Well, 40% of charades is still using your body quite a bit, but not crazy. It doesn't look funny anymore. Then it just looks like you're so emotionally caught up in what you're saying that your body can't help but act those things out. Uh, and then when you don't know what to do with your hands, drop them to your sides. I generally press my middle fingers ever so gently into my thighs as a reminder that that's where they are. It's an awkward place to be. It doesn't look awkward to the audience if your face is still engaged, especially if you don't do it for a really long time. Because when I just don't know what to do with them, that's where they go. But inevitably, within about 15, 20 seconds, they're starting to come up and gesture in ways that reflect what I'm saying. I'm doing it now and you can't even see me because now it's become natural to me. Yeah, to I, be do, able I do the to same thing. I mean, it's, it just becomes part of how you express yourself. And 
Um, so you just natural with it. But like you said, if you don't know where to put them, don't cross your hands. Don't, you know, don't put them on right. your mouth, put them down by your side. Uh, don't tap your fingers together over fingers. and over again. Don't twiddle your thumbs. <laughs> don't, don't mess with the change in your pocket. You know, it's, yes. It's all that yeah. Everyone's got their go-to thing. And I, exactly. you should point it out to people go, you know, stop banging, banging your fingers together. Stop twiddling your thumbs, whatever it might be. The other thing is to plan some hand gestures. So you know what you're going to do with your body. A uh, great example was one of my clients and she did this on her own. I didn't, suggest it. She was talking about weighing the options. So her hands were out and they were going up and down a little bit like a scale. When she said on the one hand, she looked at her right hand and lowered it as if she was putting weight on that side of the scale. And then she turned her head and looked at her other hand and said, on the other hand, boom, that side started going down. The right hand started coming up. And in the end, when she was saying that the second one was the better option, she lowered it so much that it looked like, like the scale was hitting its lower point. And then she dropped her hands to her side. I said, that was just great. I mean, it had come from other things I'd said to her. She wouldn't have probably come up with it without the coaching. But it was such a great example of displaying what she was trying to say. We would have understood it without that, but it really brought it to life. And probably so much more powerful than any PowerPoint slide she could have put up to have made that point. Absolutely. In that moment. In yes. that moment, were... exactly. All right. So what do you do to continually improve your speaking skills? How, how do you get better? Doing different speeches, I, I get hired to do two more than any other. I have a, the motivational speech that I mentioned where I get the whole audience playing the improv games. And I have a speech based on public speaking, get A's, not Z's, where I do a kind of a crash course in, in, in speaking skills, what, what do's and don'ts. But if I want to continue to get better, I can – it's not that I can't improve those speeches. It's harder to tweak forever. Um, so I just submitted myself to a storytelling contest, which meant I had to write all new material, figure out how I'm going to deliver it. I don't know that I got in yet, uh, but it was a great opportunity to write and think through if I, were, if I did get in. What would I do at this point? What would I do with my body? How would I handle my face? What would I put up on the screen? Because they allow you to use PowerPoint for images in this storytelling thing. So putting myself back into it. Also, my improv work. The more I improvise, the better I am when I'm speaking. I mean, this conversation is, is very improvised. I, I had an idea of some of the questions you might ask, but, but we've gone off on tangents and things like that. So it puts me in a position of saying practicing – one of the reasons, honestly, I agree to do podcasts is it keeps me on my toes for when I'm speaking. It's great. This is great exercise for me as well as hopefully good for your listeners. Uh, I also like to uh, put myself in situations where I have to think on my feet outside of improv, just playing games and things like that where you have to think quickly. And those, those are all – those all come into play. And I also practice singing. I do things around using my voice in that way. Because singing is a great way to play with vocal variety. And the nice thing about it is you don't have to be in pitch if you're practicing by yourself. I'm not worried about whether I sing well. It's the fact that I'm singing lends itself to changing my voice in a similar way. Interesting. Great insights. Thanks for sharing those. All right. The latest book, again, is The Worst Days Make the Best Stories. As it relates to what we've been talking about, what's one or two key takeaways from that book? that uh, would help somebody get better at public speaking? Oh, because <laughs> um, it's not a book about public speaking, but I, can, but the, I think I, I can answer I suspect, that. I haven't read it, but I suspect the key takeaway <laughs> just by the title is your point that you mentioned a couple of times about bringing in storytelling, right? And and that is, that, yeah, in order to answer your question right, that's probably where I would go. It's 29 short stories that all have a life lesson to them. So think of it like uh, chicken soup for the soul with a lot more humor. And 
what, the reason I recommend this book to some of my clients is what you said, is that when you're sharing stories in a speech, they always need to serve a purpose. I, I'm not big on, and I am very big on humor, but I'm not big on humor if it doesn't relate to why you're speaking that day. There should always be a tie-in. So sometimes I have had clients who have trouble with that idea of coming to what's the moral of the story? Why did I share this story with you? And I think The Worst Days Make the Best Stories is a great example of how every story in that book was chosen because there's a life lesson. I have some really great funny stories I would have loved to have included in this book, which is mostly humorous, but it's not a story where I learned anything. It's just something funny that happened. So they didn't make it into the book. And so as people read the stories, they're like, oh, I could see how along the way you're dropping the where did you go wrong? Why did you set yourself up for a fall in this situation? Boom. What can you learn from the fact that you experienced it so you don't make that mistake again? And that's, that's kind of – and it's not all me. My brother takes a hit in the book. My grandfather and grandmother both take hits. It's, it's other people I know, but a lot of the stories are things that happened to me. On all of them, it's kind of like one of those things where, well, you know, not every day goes well, but boy, they sure can make a great story. And then when you're a motivational speaker, anytime something goes wrong, like, can I use this? Can I use this? Absolutely. Makes life a little more interesting. Absolutely. All right, Milo, uh, question for you. What do you love most about what you do today? Oh, wow. In coaching, it is so thrilling when I get someone who comes back. They're like, I totally aced it because of what we did happened just this week. And it happened to a COO. So I got a whole bunch of other contracts out of it. So it was really nice. But he came back and he said that the speech that we worked on, he was one of the midday speakers. The CEO followed him on stage and said, oh, I think I can just send you all home. It's not going to get any better than that, is it? And he kind of said it a little like sarcastically, but but for my client, he was like, wow, the CEO just said I hit this speech out of the ballpark to the point where there's no point in going on. Holy cow. Yeah. So that's a great feeling. In terms of the speeches, when people come up to me and say things afterwards like, I'm really going to be thinking about what you said today for a while. This was this was something. Or I had so much fun today. If you had told me I was going to play improv games, I would have said I'm not showing up. But that was really more fun. That pushed me out of my comfort zone a little bit, and I ended up having a great time. Uh, or, or that it's going to make a difference in my team with a team building that you know the way these people interacted today is not how I've seen them interact before. And I think it's going to take some of the stress out of working together. Yeah, when you have an impact and when you connect, that really, that really is what drives you. It's a wonderful feeling. All right. We've touched on the different services that you offer. We've talked about the books. Is there anything we've missed on services that you offer your clients that we want to mention here? Uh, the entertainment shows, uh, we have two that we do. Uh, I do a uh, Simon Says. Not a whole lot you learn from it probably, but I do talk about uh, cl clever listening and careful listening and do, can we really pay attention. I got 800 people at a convention not too long ago down to one winner in 15 minutes. I hope I never have to do it again that fast. <laughs> but I got the whole audience playing and then we got it down to about 50 people that I brought on stage and uh, although some of them the way they came to the stage, they ended up getting out, so it became 30s on stage. Uh, and uh, I got, then I got it down to a winner, which I can't guarantee, but it sure was fun getting, you know, getting that many people playing Simon Says with me. And there's only a handful of people in the country who do the professional Simon Says, so that's nice. And then the other one that we do sometimes is a two- or three-man show where we use 10 improv games 
to prove 10 business principles. So it's it's entertainment for the people there, but the management like it better than just bringing in an entertainer because we really are proving some business principles through it. Uh, for instance, one of the games is quality results can't be rushed. So what we do is we do a one-minute improv scene based on an audience suggestion. Maybe it's funny, maybe it's not. We don't care. And then we say, supposing we only had 30 seconds to do that scene, and we do the same scene again in 30 seconds, and the quality suffers a little. Then we do it in 15 seconds, and 8 seconds, and 4 seconds, and 2 seconds, and the audience loves watching what's going to be left of the scene as they get us you know the minute down to two seconds of flailing around the screen uh, the stage and, and screaming out some of the key words from the center and uh, so we're out of breath by the time that that one is over but we get to say you know so next time you're trying to cut the amount of time you put on a project be aware like you saw here the quality is going to suffer and we do that 10 times over so it's a fun show but there's a message throughout okay all right besides uh, your books uh, is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend to our listeners uh, one of the ones I really like is Janet Williams, You Don't, you don't Ask, You Don't Get. Be and it, the title kind of summarizes it all, but you know how sometimes it, you have to read the whole book anyway for it to really sink in? <laughs> but if, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I have learned that to be true as an entrepreneur so many times. So whether it's that testimonial letter you hope they would write, don't hope, ask. Whether it's the, you know, the, can you introduce me to so-and-so, don't hope they'll think of it, ask. Yes, there will be occasionally times where I'll overdo it and be seen as a little bit pushy, but the amount of doors that it's opened by just asking, and, and you know, especially when the person has nothing to lose by it. If, if, if they just get to come across nice, then they get to feel good about themselves, and, and it opens something for you. That Yelp review, oh my gosh, if, you know, if, if you're not doing what you can to get onto Yelp and get good reviews, you're missing out on some real power there. So uh, so that's a good one. Janet Williams, you don't ask, you don't get. And because we're all our own little IT companies, another nice one is Release Your Inner Nerd by Beth Zisenis. I think that's how she says her name, Beth Z. But just remember, Release Your Inner Nerd. It's all those apps and programs you should be downloading to make your life so much more organized that you didn't know were out there. So that's a good read, too. Great. Two great suggestions. We'll have links, links rather, to those as well as your books. We'll have those for our listeners on the great. show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. So two final questions. One is, a parting piece of advice or thought or something I didn't ask you about that you would like to share with our audience? Uh, let's see, a parting piece of advice. Um, when you are speaking, a lot of times people say it's not about you, it's about them. And that's really tough advice because there's a hundred of them and they all came to the table with different experiences and happy to be there, fight with their wife, feeling sick today. It's too much pressure to put on you to say it's about them either. It's about the message. Think about whether you are delivering your message to the best of your ability. And if you're doing that, that's all anyone can ask of you. And just keeping that in mind can take a lot of the pressure off of ourselves. Yeah, love that. And where would you like our listeners to go online to find out more about you and your businesses? If you've been intrigued by any of the improv stuff and want to learn more about that, it's improvventures.com. A little hard to spell, so just go to miloshapiro.com and it'll forward you there. And if you're interested in anything else I have to say about public speaking coaching, and by the way, I do it with Skype around the world. I have coached people as far away as Tokyo. The only challenge was being awake at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but Skype is a great means for me to coach people in their public speaking skills. Go to publicdynamics.com. And that's the fastest way to find my books, too, is to go to publicdynamics.com or miloshapiro.com instead of trying to hunt them out on Amazon. 
on Newell Phone. If you forget any of those links, we'll have those as well on the show notes page for this episode. And thank you for that as well. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Milo, this has been a, a great time. Thanks for indulging us here a little longer than we usually go, but it's so it's such great stuff. I learned a lot. Thanks hey. for taking the time to be with us today. I was happy to do it. I'm glad uh, that you got a lot out of it. Absolutely. Folks, this is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.